You are listening to a message from The Political Pastor. Each week, The Political Pastor expounds the Word of God to his local congregation. These messages are made available to you in podcast on thepoliticalpastor.com as well as other popular podcast platforms. Visit thepoliticalpastor.com and click on the podcast link at the top to find our full listing of podcasts. Christ is all-sufficient. He is the object of our worship. Are we in Christ? Are we worshiping Him in a way that is worthy and brings glory to Him? Or are we merely worthless worshipers? Turn with us to Mark chapter 7, verses 1-7 through 7, as we study the sermon delivered by the pastor titled, Worthless Worship. Alright, Mark chapter number 7. And we'll begin our reading in verse number 1 this morning. Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. And so again, this is Reformation Sunday. And I'm reminded that 505 years ago, Martin Luther nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. It was this catalyst of the Reformation that was a reaction to the Roman Catholic Church's practices of selling indulgences. And really, this was only one of many such practices uh, that had been added by the church beyond what the Word of God said in that alone. So the Reformers called to return to Sola Scriptura, or the Word of God alone, as the sole authority, I believe, should still be heeded some 500 years later. We're still dealing with these issues in the church today. Once again, we find ourselves departing from the truth and needing to return back to the truth of God's Word and God's Word alone. So our worship then, because of that, has missed the mark. And you would understand by definition, the Greek word amatia means to miss the mark, or that's the word we translate as sin. The fact that our worship has missed the mark today means our worship is sinful. It's sinful. And God is calling on us today to repent and return to true worship. Now, Jesus dealt with this same kind of thing that we're dealing with today, that Martin Luther dealt with in 1517. Jesus Christ dealt with this during his time on the earth. He had this group of religious leaders he was always knocking heads with, wasn't he? That group of Pharisees. And in our text today, Jesus is going to address these Pharisees and their worthless worship. Look at Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups, pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, last week we saw the disciples learning that lesson of the loaves. Remember, Christ had fed the multitudes uh, with just five loaves and two fishes. And they took up the 12 baskets beside all that after everyone was filled. Some fifteen to 20,000 people possibly had eaten there during that day. And as it came late at night, Jesus had instructed his disciples to get in the boat and go to a desolate place. And he went alone to go and pray. And then we read how Jesus came out across the water, across the sea, as he walked on top of the water, coming to his disciples during the night, probably sometime after 3 a.m. during that watch. And Jesus comes to them as they're troubled. They're, being, they're drifting off of their course and the wind and the waves are giving them problems. And Jesus is coming to pass by them. And he has this encounter with his disciples in which they are lacking in faith even still. Though they had seen his works and they had seen the miracles and they had just experienced him feeding the multitude of people from just those five loaves, they had forgotten the lesson of the loaves. They'd forgotten who Christ was. They'd forgotten how he was sufficient for all of their needs because here they were in need once again and the answer for their need was right before them, but they'd forgotten the lesson they should have just learned. And so once again, they were being taught the lesson of the loaves. That Christ indeed is all sufficient for everything. And if Christ is all sufficient, and he is, then he is the subject and the object of our worship. All of our worship is focused upon him who is all sufficient and worthy of such. Our word worship that we use comes from an old word that literally means worth-ship. It's like two words put together, worth and ship. And then we get worship. So the root of that is worth. The idea of worship is that we ascribe worth to something or to someone. When we worship something, and some of us have problems with worshiping things other than God, <clears throat> we establish our own idols, we worship things of this world, what are we doing? We're ascribing and casting worth upon it. We're saying you're important. You're valuable to me. And so I'm going to lift you up. I'm going to hold you up. And I'm going to count you as having worth and being worthy. So our worship of Christ is doing just that. Saying you are of great value, of great worth. You are worthy. I hold you up. I lift you up and hold you in high regard. And I give you my worship. And here Jesus addresses the worship of the Pharisees. Notice what he says in verse number seven of our text. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. He says of their worship, your worship is not ascribing worth. In fact, your worship is worthless. In vain you worship me. It's futile. It's empty. It's worthless worship. And that's what he's addressing from this text today. So this is going to lead us as we go through the text to look at ourselves and to look at our worship and examine ourselves and say, are we in Christ Jesus? Are we worshiping him in a way that is worthy, that brings glory to him? So our text is going to take us in a direction this morning where we examine these Pharisees 
who are the worthless worshipers. And then we're going to see a prophecy which talks about their worthless worship. So first, let's look at this Pharisee, the worthless worshiper. Let's see who this worthless worshiper is and and kind of uh, sketch out what this person looks like. Who were these Pharisees, these religious leaders? Well, the Pharisee, first of all, is a fault finder. Pharisee is a fault finder. In verse one, it says that they then they came together unto him, the Pharisees and certain of the scribes. Here's the important phrase, which came from Jerusalem. Now, as Jesus is up near Galilee during this time, these Pharisees actually went out of their way in order to find fault with Jesus. They had traveled some 90 miles from Jerusalem to come here where Jesus is. And they weren't living in a day like we are where you just hop in the car, you punch a button. You don't even turn the key now, right? You punch a button and the car starts up and off you go. And what? 90 minutes later, you've gone 90 miles. Wasn't like that then. Travel was very different. And yet, these Pharisees felt the need to go some 90 miles just so they could find fault with Jesus. Just so they could look for something to trip him up. Just, for, just to find some way to accuse him. Can you imagine the trouble that they went to just to find fault with Jesus? This shows their great contempt that they had for him. Now, this is not the idea of helping a weaker brother. This is not, this is not some religious group saying, man, we're, we're worried that Jesus is going to fall into sin. We better make sure we're, we're there to help him up, you know, when he falls and restore him. Now, this was a fault finding mission. That's what they were set out to do. They were going to find something wrong so they could say, aha, we got you. We're going to accuse you now. And I'm going to tell you about myself. I have enough faults in me that you don't have to go to great lengths to find my faults. You know that? If you want to spend your time working and digging and trying to find my faults, you can. But I'm going to tell you, you don't have to dig very far to find them. They're pretty surface. Doesn't take much to find fault in me. But if you are straining... To always find a means to accuse. That it says more about you as the accuser than the person you're looking to accuse. I mean, these Pharisees went to great lengths in order to accuse. What did God that we would rather go out of our way to encourage than to go out of our way to find fault? But that's what these Pharisees had done. And it's what we often do. They not only went out of their way to find fault, but they also went outside of the word to find fault. They went outside the word of God to find fault. Look at verse number two. It says, when when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. They found what they were looking for, but they didn't find what they were looking for in the word of God. They didn't find it in the law of God. Instead, they found it in their own human traditions. The accusations that they are leveling against Christ because of his disciples action had nothing to do with what the law had said to do. It had everything to do with their own created rules and regulations that they had put in place. And based on those, they found fault. So in this occasion here, as the disciples are eating, now notice Mark 
goes into a little bit of a teaching of Christ here. <clears throat> and we talked about how Mark is more of a guy of action, not so much the teaching. Well, notice this teaching is coming as a result of an event. The event was the disciples were eating and they had not washed their hands ceremonially the way that they were supposed to wash their hands according to the scribes and Pharisees and the, the tradition of the Jewish elders. And so because they had not done this, these Pharisees find their place of accusation. Now, it was a breaking of tradition, not a breaking of law. That's an important distinction. Now, as Christians, there is an obligation for us as Christians to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ about sin in their life. We're not talking about ignoring sin. When there's sin in our life, we should confront the sin in our brother or sister with a view towards restoration, not a view towards condemnation. You understand? The purpose of confronting a brother in Christ about sin in their life is never to condemn or to accuse or find fault. Instead, it's to restore them. It's to be iron sharpening iron. It's to be a good brother to them, to restore them to what Christ would have them to be. That's the purpose. But it's sin that we must confront, not matters of the conscience. If God's word takes a hard stance on something and our brother is disregarding that, we have an obligation to restore him and bring him back into the truth. But when our brother is involved in something that just doesn't meet with our conscience, but he's okay with it in his conscience, and it doesn't contradict directly the word of God, those are not matters in which we get involved and try to point the finger and accuse our brother. That's where legalism comes into play. And that's what the Pharisees had done. They'd added all these additional things on top of what God had actually said. God doesn't burden us down. I mean, when we take up the yoke of God, it's light. It's not burdensome. We as people, as humans, we create the heavy burdens. We're the ones that pile it on. We're the ones that add on all the extras that thou shalt do and thou shalt not do that God has not said. So like the reformers, let's go back to sola scriptura, the word of God alone. Not solo my Christian brother and whatever he thinks is right and wrong. So they had gone out of their way and they had gone out of the word to find fault. Pharisees are fault finders. But notice also these Pharisees, these worthless worshipers, they're burden binders. They're fault finders and they're burden binders. They love to tie a good burden on someone's back. How many of you read the Pilgrim's Progress and, you know, the, the pilgrim, he has this burden on his back. But we like to put burdens on people's back. That's what the Pharisees did. They wanted to create the burden. They wanted to make it heavy. They wanted to make it difficult on people. This was an act of the flesh and self-righteousness. So they could point to themselves and say, look at what I can do. And look at what you're not doing. You see how that just affects our pride? That's why... We don't focus on matters of the heart. It's much easier for us to focus on matters of the external. Because when we focus on the external, it's very easy to point to that and say, look at what you're not doing and look at what I'm doing. 
And pride sets in, doesn't it? These Pharisees were burden binders. They had created a burden through their ceremonial ritual. Look at verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands off, eat not, holding the tradition of elders. Now, according to John MacArthur, what had happened here in this passage had nothing to do with cleaning dirty hands. I mean, mama always told you to go wash your hands before you come to the table, right? We know that there's, there's a certain need for cleanliness. We understand those things. But that was not what was at issue here. It wasn't, oh, those disciples, man, they might get sick because they're eating with dirty hands. That, that was not the issue at all. They had not kept, according to that verse, the tradition of the elders. That was the problem. It wasn't really dirty hands. It was that ceremonially they were considered unclean. They had not followed their ceremonial ritual. Now, the ceremony that they would go through was something like this. It had nothing to do, again, with, with true cleanliness. But to start out, before they would eat bread, a person would hold their hands out with their fingers pointed up. And someone would pour water over their hands with their fingers pointed up. And when the water began to drip off of their wrists, they were good for step number one. And then they would turn their hands over with their fingers pointed down. And someone would pour water again until once again the water dripped off. And once they had poured water with the fingers up and poured waters with the fingers down, then they would take the fist of one hand and they would rub the other hand. And then they would take the other fist and rub the other hand. And when that was done, they had completed their ceremony. They were now considered clean. Anybody find that in their Bible, by the way? No. This was oral tradition passed along by their elders. This is just what they did. You ever heard somebody say, this is the way we've always done it. So why do you do that in your church? Well, we've, I don't know. We've always done it that way. Did God say do it? I don't know. We've just always done it that way, right? That's what these Pharisees have done. They've just always done it that way. That's what they've been told to do. That's what they're expected to do. So it was a ceremonial ritual. It was a tradition of the elders, not law. But here's what had happened. Their tradition had supplanted the written law of God. They now placed more emphasis upon their man-made traditions than it did the very word of God. And I'm going to tell you that's a contemporary problem. Right now it is. I can't tell you how many times I've encountered these situations in church bodies and congregations. Where we continue with practices that have nothing to do with, yea, hath God said has everything to do with this is what we have done. This is what someone else has said. And so they added this on top of the law of God. R.C. Sproul points out that the halakha was the oral teaching that the rabbis had. Now, they passed this on orally from generation to generation. Think about that. This law just kind of keeps getting passed on by word of mouth. Being memorized, passed on, passed on, passed on. Till finally about the 3rd century A.D., these things were written down. And they were written down in the Mishnah, which was the bulk of the Talmud at the time. Now, 25%, you get this, a fourth of this tradition written down in the Mishnah was devoted to ritual cleanliness and purity. A fourth of it 
had to do with all these rituals, ceremonies to be clean. And they had different levels of cleanliness inside of that. Is anybody confused yet? Does this seem a little bit complicated? It was. So the first level of cleanliness is what we see here, where you had to be clean before you would eat the bread. And so you went through this process I just described of pouring the water on the hands of the fingers, up the fingers, down and rubbing with the fist. That was the easy one. The next level of cleanliness was a little bit harder. And it's addressed in this text as well in verse number four. It says, and when they come from market, except they wash, they eat not. Now, in some translations, you're not going to have that phrase. Some will say that, that more reliable manuscripts don't include this section about the market. But I can tell you this, it was practice. This is what was done during that time. So it is very fitting that it is here. So what would happen is the first step was the pouring on the hands so you could eat bread. But the second ceremonial step of cleansing, the greater one, was full immersion. I mean, taking a real bath this time. And they would take a bath. They would go through this full immersion when they came back from the marketplace. It's like when you decide to go to town and you get through going through Wally World, you know, or something. You come back. Now, I don't know about you, but there there are times when I go out in this world. And there are times I go out, especially into the city. When I get back, I feel like I need a bath. You know, it's like I got to wash some of this stuff off. Well, what they would do is when they went out to the marketplace, these Jews, these good Jews might encounter Gentiles. In fact, most often they would. And they considered them to be unclean people. So they just come back from rubbing elbows with a bunch of unclean, ceremonially, spiritually, unclean people. So now that I come back, I'm going to take a bath. Now, did they do anything to fix the uncleanliness of those Gentiles that they encountered? No. And did rubbing elbows of those Gentiles do anything to change their heart or affect their own holiness? No. But symbolically, they went through this ritual of bathing themselves to say, I'm now clean. Now, Jesus, when he addresses these people, he makes a distinction between two phrases. It's important for you to note when you're studying scripture. There are times when Jesus will say, it is written. Jesus never challenges something when he says it is written. Why? That's the written law of God. It's truth. It's established. But other times you'll hear Jesus say, you have heard it said that. You recognize that phrase? What does that mean? He challenges that you have heard it said because, again, that's the oral man-made tradition that's passed on. So these burden binders put their ceremonial ritual on folks, but they also had this sanctimonious ritual. I told you they, they would come back from the marketplace and had to wash themselves off. This was the whole attitude of I'm better than they are. That's the accusation we get as Christians many times. Don't we? You think you're better than I am. Well, that's the way the Pharisees really acted. I've been out there amongst these Gentiles. I better come back and take a bath. I've been around those unholy, unclean people. They're not like I am. I'm so much greater. I'm so far above. I keep the law. I do all the right things. They're they're sinful. So I'm going to take my bath because I'm so sanctimonious. I'm so much better than they are. If coming into contact with other sinners pollutes you on the inside, then that's problematic. Can that happen? Yes, it can happen. 
What happens when that teenager says, I'm just going to go hang out at this party. You know, these people I know do things that they're not supposed to do and they don't need to be around, but I'm going to go hang out with them anyway. And then they hang out at that party and then what happens? A little bit of pressure kind of comes in. Next thing you know, they're participating in activities they ordinarily wouldn't participate in. And now they truly have defiled themselves, haven't they? Being in the presence of that. That's not what we're talking about here. The idea here was we had casual contact with people out there in the world. Now we feel like we're dirty. And we're so much better than they are. So we're going to take our little ritual, sanctimonious cleansing here. It was this attitude of superiority. Hear me clearly this morning, though. We have nothing to boast in. None of us. Saving Christ alone. Christ alone. We have nothing to boast in. Now listen, if you want to live a fleshly, human-centered, religious life, you'll find plenty to boast about. When you focus on those externals, you say, I've checked the boxes, I've kept all the rules, I've done all the things. Yeah, you, you can feel real good about yourself in those things. You can become real prideful and boast about that. Well, you know, I didn't miss a single, single Sunday. I got baptized. I, I studied. I read every day. I prayed every day. I did all of these things. When we have that attitude, we find means to boast. But the reality is none of us are any better than any other person in this world because every single one of us were born in this world as sinners. And every single one of us, every last one, was incapable of doing anything about their own salvation. Not a one of us could measure up. And for any of us to sit there and have the attitude that we're accused of having, whether we do or not, for us to sit there and have that attitude that I am better than anyone else because of how holy and righteous I live. Listen, I was a filthy sinner. Any righteousness I have is the righteousness of Christ. And He alone is to be boasted in. He alone is worthy of praise. I am nothing apart from Christ. We're all sinners unable to save ourselves. So if we boast, if any man boasts, Paul says, let him boast in Christ. The Pharisees were fault finders, burden binders, and they were Christ critics. In verse number five of our text, it says, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? Now, Jesus is known by his disciples. When the early church in the first century was mockingly referred to as being Christians, the term meant little Christ. We since have said it means Christ-like. But what they're saying is these are like little Jesuses. They look like him. They act like him. They, they do like Jesus. They follow Jesus. And so when the early church was looked at, they were a reflection of their Savior, Jesus Christ. When others would see them, they would see him. Just as Jesus said, when you see me, you've seen the Father. When others see us, they see Christ because we are His. Now, when the Pharisees were looking to accuse Jesus, they saw in His disciples. And who did they hold responsible for the disciples' activity? They held Jesus responsible for what the disciples were doing. The fact that the disciples were eating with unwashed hands, that they were considered unclean, they said, Jesus, that's your fault. These are your disciples. Why do your disciples do this? Was the question that they asked. So he was known by his disciples. And they weren't just really after the disciples. Who were they after? 
They were after Christ, weren't they? They were going after him. They were looking at his disciples in order to accuse him. How many of you know the world still does that today? They look at us as Christians so that they might accuse Christ so they can find fault with him. Well, look at all these people that claim your name. Look at how they live. Look at what they do. I'm just as good as they are. What kind of Christ are you? You see, they look at us so they can critique him. We will be criticized by the world because we are a reflection of Jesus Christ. They hate him. And therefore, they will hate us. So what does the Bible tell us to do? Rejoice in so much as you're partakers in Christ's suffering. When that suffering comes, when that ridicule comes, rejoice. Because we're being identified with Christ and his suffering. That actually should be an encouragement to us. If we suffer for his namesake, that should encourage us about who we really are. We don't take it first, though we take it as an encouragement. So there are the Pharisees, the worthless worshipers. Now quickly, we're going to end with these next couple of verses. And I want us to see the prophecy regarding the worthless worship. Jesus quotes from Isaiah here in verse number six. He answered and said to them, Well, hath Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. How be in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments Amen. Now, Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 29, 13. And Jesus never pulled any punches when it come to dealing with these dangerous religious folks. Jesus certainly could be compassionate and gentle. We see Jesus treating sinners in a loving way. We find Jesus saying, let the little children come unto me. We see this gentle, compassionate side of Christ. He had it. It was there. Now, here's what happens now. We try to distort the view of truly who Christ was. And we make him into this just always compassionate, always gentle, almost a sissified type Jesus Christ. Jesus had this side to him, but it wasn't the only side of him. Especially when Jesus confronted these dangerous religious leaders. When Jesus confronted the Pharisees, he was anything but compassionate and gentle. In fact, when you read the word of God, you'll find Jesus being quite a sarcastic person when it comes to dealing with these Pharisees. He used a lot of sarcasm in his relation to them. He'd be very harsh in dealing with them. He called them names. Oh my goodness, did you hear that? Can you believe that Jesus would call anybody a name? Well, he did. He didn't call everybody names, but he did when he was dealing with these false religious leaders. He even got physical. What happened when he came into the temple and it was being polluted? Jesus physically overturned the tables. He put together a cord, a whip, and drove out the money changers out of the temple. That doesn't sound real compassionate and gentle, does it? Jesus was truly masculine in every way. He understood how to be compassionate and gentle, but he also understood how to take a stand and be strong when it was needed. And look at who he's relating to. We see that strength really come forward when we're dealing with these false religious leaders. That's where it, it really shines through. It's why I have no problem with confronting the perversions of Christianity in our world today. It's why I have no problem calling on the carpet those ministers, pastors, church leaders who will condone sin 
who practice harmful, worthless worship. I have no problem with calling that out. That's exactly what Jesus did. Because the prophecy was dealing with their hypocrisy. They they were hypocrites with no holiness. Verse 6 says that Isaiah prophesied of you. And what does Jesus say? You scribes? No, he says, you hypocrites. Here's where he calls them a name. He calls them hypocrites. Now, a hypocrite at that time was an actor. The term was used of an actor in a play. And in Roman culture, if, if a play was taking place, one actor could actually take on several roles. If you imagine this table up here in front of me this morning, if I had a, a multitude of masks laying on this table, I could present a play to you and I could represent myself as different characters using those masks laid on the table. And that's what they would do. So I could pick up one mask and put it in front of my face and act in that character. I could pick up another mask and I could act in that character. And that was the term for that actor. They were called a hypocrite. They were a person who could play a part and they could play many different parts. It was all about the mask and the presentation, wasn't it? And Jesus says, that's exactly what you guys, you Pharisees are. You're actors. You're hypocrites. You keep putting up a mask, whatever you want people to see, whatever you want people to think, that's the mask that you put forward. But you're disguising what's really going on deep inside in your heart. Inside, there's a heart issue that needs to be dealt with. He says, you're giving lip service, but not heart service. This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What's coming out of their mouth says, oh, we're worshiping God. We're praising God. We're his people. We're chosen people. But what was coming out of their lips was not a reflection of really who they were. And what was really happening in their heart. They didn't have a repentant, changed heart. Now listen to this carefully. If your worship does not lead you to be a changed repentant, sanctified child of God, you had an experience, but you didn't have worship. Do you understand? There are a lot of people who have great experiences and they call it worship, but it's not. When you encounter a holy God, you always leave a changed person. You can go to a pep rally, a.k.a. a church service. You can go to a pep rally. You can act foolishly while you're there. Have a good time. Or maybe sip some coffee. Hear a touching story. Three points in a poem, whatever it is, right? You can be moved emotionally. You can shed some tears. You can laugh. You can have a great time. But if in all that it doesn't lead you into a place of holiness, all you have is an experience. It wasn't worship. Do you know this morning that you've had that heart changed? Are you a saved person? Are you being sanctified and growing in holiness? Are we only growing in our external works? 
You see, what happens on the outside is important. But only as much as it's a reflection of what's happening on the inside. The Pharisees had it backwards, didn't they? They thought they could clean up the outside. Like that had something to do with what was on the inside. Jesus is showing that the opposite is true. When that repentance and change in our heart takes place, that becomes reflected on the outside. It doesn't work the other way around. There was hypocrisy, but no, no holiness. And finally, there was teaching, but there was no truth. Look at verse 7. Howbeit in vain, it's futile, empty, that they worship me. Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. This is important because at the heart of all of worship, and we've misunderstood this completely in the American church today. Worship in the American church today has become centered, in fact, has become synonymous with music. If you talk about someone coming on staff at a church and he's a worship leader, you know what they mean by that? When they say he's the worship leader, that means he does our music. He sings songs, he leads the band or the choir, he does whatever. And we associate all of worship with music. But actually, the heart of worship is not just music and song, but it's doctrine. It's teaching. It's the Word of God. What did Jesus tell that woman at the well about worship and what kind of worshipers God was seeking? Because they had an issue about where they were supposed to worship. Well, you say in Jerusalem is where we're supposed to worship, but we say on this mountain, now where do we worship? And Jesus says the Father's looking for true worshipers, not worthless worshipers, true worshipers. And who are they? He says, those who will worship in spirit and in what? True. Spirit and in truth. A lot of churches today have a little something they call spirit anyway. Maybe more like the pep rally spirit than the Holy Spirit. But they got a lot of energy and enthusiasm and excitement. Nothing wrong with a little bit of enthusiasm and excitement in our worship. But when we lose sight of the truth and we lose sight of the word of God... And it's not the prime thing. It's why every week, everything that we do here is centered around the Word of God. Even the songs that we sing, we include the Scripture and things that, that are associated with it because we want to be grounded and rooted in the Word of God. And we give the bulk of our time not to our dancing around and shouting and singing and having a good time. We dedicate the bulk of our time to saying, what does God have to say to me today? What does God's Word say? And so we spend the bulk of our time in the preaching of the Word of God. It, preaching is the heart of worship. But it must be done with doctrinal integrity, not with human philosophy. Notice what they were doing there in verse number 7. Teaching for doctrine. Teaching as their theology. The commandments of men. Not the Word of God. Their own thoughts, their own philosophy. Do you think we're any better today when our pulpits are filled with philosophy and humanism, rationality, 
and simple feel-good stories. It's almost like we've taken ministers, pastors, and made them more psychologists or, or self-help, inspirational speakers, filled with platitudes. What are they speaking? They're speaking the commandments of man, the philosophies of man. And just like the reformers and just like Jesus in his day, I believe there's a call for us to come back to the word of God alone. You don't need what I've got. You don't need what I have to say. You don't need my philosophies. You don't need my thinking. You need the word of God. That alone will transform you. That alone will save you. So we ask the question this morning. Are we in Christ? Or are we just going through some worthless worship? Because if we're not in Christ, all of this is in vain. You can sing the words. You can go through the lip service. You can pick up your little worship guide. You can sing along. But if you're not in Christ, it's all worthless. It's empty. Maybe we know that we're saved. We know we're Christians. But as a result of our time worshiping together with one another, coming before God, are we leaving here changed people? Is this pushing us on toward love and good works? Is this growing us up in sanctification? Are we becoming more like Christ because of what's occurred right here, right now, today as we're together? Are we growing in holiness? Or are we only growing in the external? Are we worshiping Him in a way that's worthy and brings glory to Him? Or are we merely worthless worshipers? Let's bow together this morning. You have been listening to a message by the political pastor from his home pulpit. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. From 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Be sure to follow The Political Pastor by visiting thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top of the page and learn how to subscribe to us and our various social media feeds. If you would like to learn more about Jesus Christ and His salvation, please visit thepoliticalpastor.com. Click on contact at the top of the page and write to us. We welcome the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ.